So today we are, you know, we've been in this series of going through the book of Acts. Um, we've titled Experiencing the Greatness of God Together as a Community. Um, experiencing the Greatness of God Together as a Community. And like I've said before, you know, this, is, this has been a challenging series for me because, you know, it's really revealed a lot to me about um, what I don't know and, um, and what, I, what I don't oftentimes practice. Um, so it's really called out a lot of things for me. And as I've just been digging into this book, I've just been challenged. <laughs> I would just say that personally for me. And, um, and I hope that as, that as you read with me today, as we get into this, um, this amazing passage about the coming of the Spirit, um, that you would also experience God's greatness. You'd also be challenged too as well. So today we are going through um, Acts 2, verses 1 to 21, the coming of the Spirit, um, what people call Pentecost. So, you know, just kind of briefly aside here, um, you know, Francis Chan, I don't know if you guys know him, he wrote a book a while ago, it's called, it's called Forgotten God. Um, and one of the assertions that he made in that book um, was kind of, it was about the contemporary church in America at the time in 2009. Um, so that was a while back. And he wrote this book called Forgotten God. Um, and he was kind of making this assertion that, you know, out of the Trinity, you know, we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is kind of like, the neglected person of the Trinity um, among what he saw in the contemporary American church. And, and he didn't mean that doc doctrinally. He didn't say that like, oh, you know, for some reason we've just all forgotten about the spirit and we don't talk about him. But he was saying that in practice, there's something very different about how the contemporary American church seemed to operate and what they seemed to trust and how they seemed to live. And you know, when he was reading Acts and he was like, you know, this is, this looks very different. And so he's not the only one, but he's, you know, one of these people that pointed out that, you know, this is a quote from him is there's a big gap between what we read in scripture about the Holy Spirit and how most believers in churches operate today. Um, and so that's kind of one of his assertions. And that's one of the things that, you know, I want to talk about today. I'm excited to talk about the Holy Spirit because I don't, you know, oftentimes get to talk about Holy Spirit. And oftentimes when we do talk about the Holy Spirit, it's very nebulous. You know, we're like, uh, <laughs> what is that about? I don't know. You know, we kind of go through some doctrine and we just kind of run with it, but to have an actual practical conversation about the Holy Spirit. And, you know, as I say that, I feel <laughs> my lack of qualifications. <laughs> I, I feel, you know, as, you know, as someone who's just exploring um, with you guys as well, but it's exciting to me um, that there is this reality of the Holy Spirit that we see in Acts that we get to experience, that we get to tap into, that, um, that I want to share with us today. And so that's my heart for today. I hope that's, um, oh, it's really exciting for me <laughs> to learn and to grow about this stuff. So we're going to be in the book of Acts, like I said, okay. Um, and we're going to, uh, first point for me today is that the spirit shows up in blatantly supernatural ways. And I talked about this a little bit in my previous sermon, but the spirit does show up in, in supernatural ways. We see in Acts 2, this is verse 1, if you want to start reading with me, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. It's referring to the apostles, okay? So this is after Jesus' resurrection. Um, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Continues to say, now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. 
And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But the others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. So we're going to start there in this, in this incredible passage, um, the coming of the Spirit, bringing awe and wonder. And I want to just quickly you know, walk us through, again, what we just read, um, just the incredible nature of what happens, right? They are gathered together, um, like kind of how we are. You know, the believers are gathered together with apostles, and they're praying. You know, scriptures mentions they're just waiting, you know, because Jesus, before he had resurrected, he had said, you know, I'm sending the Spirit. And so they're just waiting. They're just like, I don't know how long it's going to take. We're waiting, we're praying, we're seeking the face of God, and we're waiting for this promised power, this promised gift that's going to come. And so here is a day when it comes, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after um, uh, Passover, after, um, so this, this happens, right? So we hear a mighty rushing wind, um, and this is, you know, this is not just in their heads. This is like, this is actually happening, right? You know, divided tongues of fire, I'm just trying to imagine what that's like, you know, just floating fire, fiery tongues just coming down, resting on them. And as a result, they are speaking in other languages. And I'm assuming fluently, you know, <laughs> I'm assuming it's not just like, you know, they're declaring the mighty works of God. And it's such an unbelievable phenomenon, you know, that the other the people outside, you know, with the house where they're, you know, they're listening, they're seeing them kind of do this and it's perplexing them. It's amazing them, right? It's producing wonder and awe. You know, I'm just trying to think right now, like if that were to happen here right now, it'd be like, you know, Kurt just starts speaking like Chinese or something. I don't know if you do, you know, Jonathan's like speaking Arabic and stuff. We're just like, what is going on here? You know, that is, you know, this, that's, that's kind of what is occurring in this place. And I want to, you know, emphasize, I think what is probably an obvious point for a lot of us, um, but very important that the coming of the spirit did come in this dramatic fashion, in this um, in this way that could not be explained by man, in this way that immediately brought awe and wonder to outsiders, to people who were not part of their group. Um, and that is kind of the purpose, as we see in scripture, of signs and wonders. Um, you know, there was a purpose for that when Jesus, you know, um, when, when he's healing and he's doing these things, and afterwards we see the apostles doing these, these things, um, there, there's a purpose to it, right? Um, the purpose is that, like, you know, for outsiders, there is this need to authenticate message of God, right? There's a need to be like, okay, well, Jesus is something God, well, says who? You know, how do you know? Well, here are the miracles that your eyes cannot even, you know, that your eyes are seeing for your very selves. Um, you're seeing, you're testifying, and you, you can't argue against that, right? You can't argue against someone being healed. You can't argue against someone who raised them. You can't argue against someone who clearly is an uneducated Galilean fisherman speaking some language that he could possibly not know. Right? And that's the purpose of the miracle, that God is working in a way to authenticate, to, you know, to bring about um, to outsiders this, this confirmation that this really is from God. And I think a lot of times, you know, when we read about these things in scripture, we're like, well, that happened in the past. And for whatever reason, we don't know why it doesn't happen today. But, I, you know, and then sometimes people argue, it's like, oh, we don't really need that today. 
Um, and, you know, I don't know God's plan and God's will of why he pours out or why he doesn't. But I would argue that in today's culture and contemporary culture, there is still a need for authority. I still think that there is an issue of authority, right, in our contemporary culture. And we go out and we preach the gospel to people, tell people about Jesus, right? The common question today is, well, how do you, how do you know that's true? Like, you know, there's other people who claim different things. How do you know that's true? Where is your authority coming from? If we go to scripture, we're like, well, you know, this is the word of God, which says that, which is true. You know, they're like, well, how do I believe the Bible? <laughs> how do I know that's, that's from the word of God, right? And so there's a very plain reason for these things happening that, you know, I would argue that um, seems to be still the case today. You know, we still live in a society of people who are outside the church who still question and, and are wondering legitimately, right? How do I know um, what you are saying is from God. And so I'd argue that still is the case that there is this need um, for the spirit to work in this way, in this supernatural, in this undefined, in this unexplainable way um, to, to the outsiders, to people, so that people may believe in the gospel. We see, um, you know, I put this in here to kind of just tell us that, show us that like, this wasn't just like a one-off instance. You know, this wasn't just, like, oh, that was a cool event that happened. It only happened to the apostles. And after that, like nothing ever happened again. The book of Acts, and I would say the whole New Testament is filled with these references, with these implicit kind of sort of, you know, implicit kind of like things that just suggest that like the spiritual life, the supernatural spiritual life was a regular aspect of ordinary Christians, of ordinary gatherings. This is a book in First Corinthians, right? This is to Gentiles. You're not even Jews. Um, and here, you know, Paul's giving a discourse and he's actually talking about something different. He's, you know, he's just trying to get them to practice their gifts in a unified way, right? His concern is about unity and about love. So there's context of that. But look at, you know, how he just casually is talking about these things. He's assuming that these things are occurring and they are occurring. And that's why he's talking about it. He says to each, he's given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. He's like, yeah, so some of you guys, you know, have the utterance of wisdom. Some of you have the utterance of knowledge another faith, another gifts of healing, another the working of miracles. Again, he's not even, you know, it's an argument can be made. He's not even saying only the apostles have that. He's just, you know, to another, just any, you know, somebody in your body, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, another various kinds of tongues, another the interpretation of tongues. And it's so interesting to me when I read these things, most Christians, a lot of Christians today read this and we're just like, I don't, I don't know what any of that is. <laughs> like, I, you know, um, a lot of Christians oftentimes are just like, you know, that's not what I think of as spiritual gifts. You know, I think of like, I'm an encourager. You know, I think of, I'm like a, you know, a server. And, and those are also valid spiritual gifts. They're mentioned in scripture. But here I see the gifting of the spirit is this plain thing, this gifting to people to empower them for ministry in ways that they previously could not do. Um, and I would argue that's still the case for things like, you know, when we talk about spiritual gifts, like helps and administration and, you know, an exhortation. This isn't just like personality tests. This is just like, oh, you're a more encouraging extroverted person. So, you know, I mean, that's from God to as well. And God can use that. And he uses that. But I do believe when I read these things, you know, he talks about the gifts of the spirit. He's talking about the special empowering that takes place as a result of us becoming Christian so that we are able to serve with effectiveness, with power, with, you know, God, um, one another. We're able to witness, we're able to do those things. And I see that all over scripture. Um, and I see that kind of as a reality of what's occurring. And so the question oftentimes we come to ask is, where is the supernatural today? 
where is the supernatural today? And I will get into some more of this, you know, but I want to kind of just leave us, start with just these two first things. First, I think we should not let our own experiences dictate what is possible. Um, a lot of times when we, you know, read into scripture, you know, we, I read Acts and, you know, Francis Chan was always talking about, he's like, you know, if I was just reading this book and I knew nothing about the church and I walked into a church, what would I expect? You know, I would expect to see the same stuff I'm seeing in First Corinthians or Acts. I would be expecting to see those things, right? And so that's kind of one of the reasons why he's saying that, you know, and he's saying that, yeah, a lot of times the reason why, you know, in some ways we've developed our theologies to be like, well, some of this is not, you know, anymore is because of the fact of our own experience that no one seems, not a lot of people seem to experience this today. So I would argue that we should not let our own experiences dictate what is possible. We should be faithful to scripture in this way. We should look at that and we should be like, well, that seems to be, it seems to be applicable to the church. There seems to be no, you know, clear, you know, part of scripture that, that argues that like, that's not the case anymore. And so we should say, well, maybe this is still possible. Maybe this should be a reality. Second, we should be open to a variety of ways the spirit can move. Um, and I want to mention this because, you know, I've been emphasizing the supernatural because that's usually what people don't, people really struggle with. You know, but I, want, I don't want you guys to miss that this way spirit move is not just merely in what seems to be openly the supernatural to other people. Um, I would say the regular way that I experience the spirit um, is through reading scripture. And, you know, I can point to these instances in my life um, when, um, when I, I was, you know, this, this one day I remember, you know, I was, I was working on a devotional for our church and it was a Tuesday. I don't know why I remember it was a very specific day and it was snowing outside and I was just, you know, reading, I, I, I don't even remember what passage in scripture, somewhere in the gospels. And I remember just being mind blown by just how awesome and how glorious and how big God was. And as I was praying, I just felt like the sense of standing before this huge mountain and just being in just, just awe you know, this sublime glory of who God is, you know, and that was just something that was just like, that was just like, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is incredible. I can point to other times in which I feel like the spirits enlightened my eyes to understand scripture and times when the word has felt living to me and I've read it and I'm like, this is different. You know, this hits different. We can talk about times when I've been in prayer and, you know, I've experienced sort of a sense, an overwhelming sense of peace or God's sovereignty that it's going to be okay, that he's in control over all these things. Those are ways that I've oftentimes experienced the spirit. And I, you know, I want to make sure that we understand those may not be, you know, extraordinary to people outside of the church. They might not be this, you know, um, this miracle that defies explanation, but those are just as supernatural, right? Those are just as spirit filled. Um, those are not things that just happen to human people, you know, experiencing the glory of God in scripture. You know, when that happens, the spirit is working and he's doing a miracle of opening our eyes to see who he is. Should be open to a variety of ways. So there's that, you know, and we can't always demand, you know, um, this way or the other. But on the other hand, I do think we should be open um, to the spirit working in openly miraculous and spiritual ways. Um, I do think that's a possibility and not only a possibility, but, you know, a reality that we, ought, we can and we should pursue. So I'm going to argue for that as well um, as we kind of keep going through scripture today. Spirit works in supernatural ways, shows up in supernatural ways. Second, I think the passage shows us the spirit is available to everyone in Christ. I'm using this word available for a reason, and we'll see, but spirit is available to everyone in Christ, that 
there's very much a sense in this passage that this is not just some super elite group of people, that this is, this is going to characterize the church. Um, any person who has faith in Christ calls himself Christian, they're available for this. So this is Peter explaining afterwards, right? Because people are accusing them of drunkenness. Peter stands with the 11. He lifts up his voice and addresses them. And we're going to look at the latter half of this sermon, actually, in Phil's message next week. So I'm not going to cover all of it. It's too much. Um, but here's his addressing of this specific thing. He says, men of Judea and all who uh, uh, dwell in Jerusalem, let's be known to you. Give ear to my words. These people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's 9 a.m., guys. Clearly, they're not drinking. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. So he says, this is a fulfillment of something that's been long prophesied in scripture. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. It's all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and servants and female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So there's a sense of just extravagant giving of spirits and they will prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So are you seeing the kind of scope of this passage here? It's not just this, oh, it's just for this little, it's like, it's just going to be this extravagant pouring out of the Spirit to young, to old, to male servants, regardless of, you know, worthiness in some ways, regardless of, you know, um, how much they read the Bible, you know, regardless of things, right? It's, it's not about them, you know, that the Spirit is being poured out. It's a phenomenon that God is going to do that has a theological significance. That's a sign and herald of the last days. Um, and that part, you know, that's a whole discussion. I can get into that, um, you know, if you want, if you're curious about how this prophecy works in that case, you can talk to me afterwards, but I won't get into that here. So it's clearly um, for everybody. Um, and, you know, for those of you who are, you know, kind of looking at, well, maybe, maybe that's just for the Jews, you know, because he's talking to the nation of Israel. What's well, funny because Acts actually is very clear about saying it's not just for the Jews, it's for everyone who has faith in Christ. And there's this actual instance in Acts 10 later, you know, when the Jews are just sort of like, yeah, you know, I don't know, the Gentiles, they're kind of, we don't know, you know, if that could work for them. And God actually pours out the spirit on the Gentiles. And, you know, you have this centurion, Cornelius, this guy speaking in tongues and, you know, experiencing the very same things their Jewish brothers are. And Peter, after that, you know, declares, all right, I guess it really is for everybody. I guess it really is for everybody. Um, and not only that, but Peter later on in this message, he makes it so clear. After he calls them to repentance, he tells them about what's going on. He says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. This is your response to what you're seeing. You're seeing the glory of God before your eyes. So this is what you're to do. Repent, right? Turn from your sins. Be baptized, like we're doing today, right? Um, in the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the idea here is plain. What you're seeing here, you get to be a part of that. You know, no matter who you are. For the promise was for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I hope that makes it really plain and clear what is going on in the scripture. Now, I want to clear up some things, you know, because as we talk about the spirit, there inevitably is some confusion. Um, and some of that confusion is 
it can be helpful to distinguish between two kinds of things. Um, one is this idea of having the spirit that just is the result of being Christian. Um, and I'm going to look into that in Ephesians in a, a moment here. There's a distinction between that and experiencing the fullness of the spirit. Um, and as we kind of look at Acts, there's this kind of language about being filled with the spirits um, that we're going to look in. Okay. So in Ephesians, it says here, you were also included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So I'll make things clear, right? I'm not saying that if you've never felt or experienced anything in the spirit beyond your normal life, you've not experienced the spirit supernatural stuff, you don't have the spirit, you're not a Christian. That's not what I'm saying, right? Ephesians points out, if you, if you believe, if you have genuine faith in Christ, you do have the spirit, right? You're marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit. And the argument here essentially is that like, you can't believe in Christ without the spirit of God working in your first place. Because even coming to genuine faith in Christ you know, and being baptized is not just something people do. Um, it's something that God has to do, that God has to regenerate and change somebody from being dead to alive. It's a resurrecting thing happening. So that in itself is already a miracle of spirit. So if that has happened to you and you have faith in Christ, you have relationship with God, you definitely have the spirit, right? You're marked in with him, seal the promise, Holy Spirit, which is a sign of the future things to come that you're going to inherit um, eternal life, salvation, all those things that God has promised. So I want to make that clear, right? But at the same time, um, there seems to be in Acts this kind of language of various degrees of being filled with the spirits. Um, that you can have the spirit, but you cannot be following the spirit. You could, you could have the spirit, but you cannot be paying attention to the spirit. You could have the spirit, but you could not be filled. Not really this overflowing kind of thing. Um, so you can, you can potentially neglect that, right? I think is what is being said. And so there is this call to be filled with the spirit. And it's interesting in Ephesians, it says, you know, do not be drunk with wine for that's debauchery. Whenever I think of this verse, I think of Elisa. Cause she's like, this is the only verse I'm <laughs> from two seven or something, um, which is, you know, do not get drunk with the wine, but for that's debauchery, but be filled with the spirit. And he's talking about Christians, right? And so clearly there can be this, there is this command. There's this call to be filled with the spirit. You can not be, or you can be right. And it's interesting to me, again, we're going to explore this a little bit how that's matched with the idea of being drunk with wine, how that's the parallel there going on. Um, because we're going to see that, like, I think that's a hint that filling of the spirits oftentimes can be mistaken. It seems, it seems with drunkenness, which is weird, <laughs> which is weird. Because drunkenness is obviously not this good thing, you know, but from a superficial layer, there seems to be some degree of, you know, possible um, mistaken kind of thing. And we saw that in Acts and we'll explore that in a bit, um, but be filled with the spirit. There's a call to experiencing the spirit. There's a call to um, not just, okay, I guess I have the spirit doctrinally, but to living out the reality of the spirits, even pursuing all that the spirit has to offer in gifts and even supernatural things potentially. So I want to talk a little bit about the gifts of the spirit today. This is the same passage that we looked at um, earlier, and I want to kind of get, get into a little bit of the first Corinthians of, of what it's kind of talking about. Um, but it's kind of what I said earlier, that there is a sense in which the spirit is, to have the spirit means that there is this empowering um, to witness and to serve. And that's what's kind of being talked about in this passage today. In verse 28, uh, later in that chapter, you know, here's where he mentions the other stuff, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. And here it makes clear not all our apostles, not our prophets, not all work miracles, 
not all speak in tongues, right? So there is a variety of how it's gifted. Um, but the fact that there is a gifting, right? And so if you are a member of the body of Christ, you're probably, you're going to have some kind of gift <laughs> from the spirit, some kind of empowering to do something for the body of Christ. And then there's this interesting phrase at the end, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. It's interesting because, you know, Paul spends his whole time saying, yeah, like, you know, not everyone does all these things. They all have value. It's all good, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. And it's clear from the context here, the higher gifts he's talking about, because he has an order here, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, then that he's talking about, you know, what, what, he, would what he would consider these higher gifts. Um, he clarifies this later in 14, chapter 14, you know, there's this whole famous chapter about love that like, yeah, spiritual gifts is not just about boasting yourself up, but about love. And he says, pursue love. And again, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. And, you know, Richard and I, when we, when we used to read, the, read this text, we'd always just look at it and we'd just be like, like, is he for real? <laughs> like, so, so, you know, just looking at each other, we're just like, uh, so, you know, should we, should we, should we do this? <laughs> like, should we try? Like, should we, you know, especially that you might prophesy. And, and we understood theologically that, you know, just because, you know, there is that doesn't mean we, everyone will receive it. But there seems to be more than just like a, hey, that's a good thing that exists somewhere out in the world. But pursue it, right? Pursue it and do it. And, and Paul has a whole explanation for why prophecy is good. Because he's like, there is a power in prophecy that can speak to people, that can encourage people in just incredibly edifying ways. And God wants to use that, right? And so he's, you know, using this whole argument that, you know, tongues is not as useful, but prophecy is useful because you can go into a person's life and you can speak truth to them in a way that can really, really help them. So he says, especially that you may prophesy. So, you know, this is something I've been exploring and just been thinking about. You know, I have to admit that this is something that when I first came to college, uh, I would say Grace Life and Stempestone was, um, I'm using the word charismatic, was fairly open to charismatic things. There were people who, you know, people today who practice a lot of these and we believe and, um, you know, but I feel like a lot of it went dormant for me for a couple of years. Um, as I just wasn't seeing things, I wasn't pursuing things as much. And so I gradually kind of forgot about all that. And I personally am in a place of exploration and openness again. Um, and this is kind of one of the books that I'm sort of kind of reading through a little bit. It's by this guy named Sam Storms. Um, Sam Storms is an interesting guy. Um, you know, he's kind of like this spokesperson in some ways for the charismatic movement. Um, for um, the charismatic movement is the supernatural spiritual gifts movement for people who are not charismatic in some ways. Um, and so he has this book called Practicing the Power where he kind of talks about like, okay, if you want, if you're, if you're in, if you're interested in growing these things, you know, he has some kind of wisdom and some kind of practical tips about how you can pursue those kinds of things. So I'm kind of reading this book. I'm exploring, you know, <laughs> I don't know what I think yet, you know, but I'm exploring. And I do want to take what God has said seriously, that the prophecy is good. And that he can use it. Um, and, you know, if that's kind of where you are, I want to invite you as well. You know, if you're, if you're down to talk to me afterwards, if you're like, I'm interested, you know, I don't really know what that means. Um, you know, I'm interested. I can, we could talk more. We could read. Uh, we can learn, explore these things more. Finally, the last point I want to make today is that the Spirit's work is often met with opposition. The Spirit's work is often met with opposition. So this is back again in our main text, Acts, today. And it says, all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. 
And I talked about this. It's very interesting to me that there, there is this connection that like, that's what it appeared to them was this kind of like, it was weird. <laughs> I don't know how else to kind of put it. You know, it was weird. And I think there is a sense in which spiritual activity, supernatural spiritual activity tends to be polarizing. It tends to immediately divide people into this camp of either I believe or this is some crazy stuff. Like this is y'all, y'all are crazy. Um, this happened to Jesus himself, right? And Jesus regularly, we see him doing signs and wonders. And eventually the Pharisees, how do they respond, right? Then a demon oppressed men who was blind and mute was brought to him. This is Jesus. Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? When the Pharisees heard it, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So the Pharisees are looking at Jesus, casting out a demon, doing this supernatural work, and they're going, nah, that's, that's Satan. <laughs> or that's Beelzebub. That's, that's demonic activity happening. That's crazy to me, right? And that speaks about their spiritual blindness, about how, um, how they're just completely unable to sense what is going on. Spiritual activity tends to be polarizing. And even Jesus himself was accused of being demonic. There are more instances, you know, and this is one thing I was learning the other day, you know, Jonathan Edwards is this um, famous revivalist kind of pastor in the 1700s during America's, you know, um, you know in, the, in the early colonial period of America. And, you know, he's, he's famous for being connected to this thing called the First Great Awakening. And so there's this like massive revival that's spread across North England, uh, New England in the 1700s called the First Great Awakening, um, where people like, you know, it's just like this crazy event where tons and tons of people are suddenly pursuing and interested in Christ and holiness, and they're growing and all these things are happening. And so Jonathan Edwards is reporting some of these things he's seeing in his congregation. He's saying, you know, some of these things reporting are holy laughter, shaking, fainting, falling to the ground, trembling, and visions. The thing you have to understand about Jonathan Edwards is this guy is, you have to understand about him, there's no fog machine with him, right? There's no like, you know, huge spirit, you know, huge musical band. There's no, there's no any of these things, right? This guy was an intensely intellectual theologian who would do like, you know, 10 hour kind of deep dives into, you know, the Bible. And, you know, he would come out with this riches, you know, for the sermon, he would write out a manuscript and he would read the manuscript word for word as he was preaching. Okay. So can you imagine that, you know, if someone just came up here and says, okay, you know, blah, 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 blah. He's reading word for word. You know, he's not known to be a dramatic speaker. He doesn't yell. He doesn't do any of those things. You know, the 1700s colonial, they, they got no fog machine. They got no music man. They got none of that stuff, right? He's just talking, you know, and he's not even encouraging these things. He's not like, oh, if you feel these things, go ahead and do them. You know, he's not doing those things. He's just talking and he's talking about the glory of God. And he's giving them a picture of who Jesus is and who the Lord is and, and, and all these things. And as it's happening, this is happening to them. And it was such a divisive thing at that time that, you know, the church actually divided into two camps, people who supported the revival and people who thought, of course, it was demonic. Um, this is kind of a regular kind of thing that is occurring. People who thought it was excess, who was not, not right. And Jonathan Edwards is kind of caught in the middle because he's not given to these kinds of things. He's not like some kind of person who likes to do those things. And, and so he, he actually ends up writing this book called The Religious Affections. And, and he basically, in that book, he kind of defends um, a lot of the things that are going on. He's like, you know what? Like this stuff could be legit. This stuff really could be legit. And he kind of goes into like a whole separate kind of thing. He, you know, he wants to explain like, how do you know if something's from the spirit or it's from themselves, if they're manufacturing it or if it's from, you know, the enemy, which are all possibilities. 
And Edwards ultimately comes down to this conclusion in this book. He says, holy laughter, shaking, fainting, filling to the ground, all these things, they're not indicative of anything. You know, that could be from the enemy or that could be from God. Um, but he's saying, you know, ultimately you have to go back to the roots. You have to go back to the root of what's causing these things, you know, because people experience crazy things for all kinds of reasons, you know, but he's saying if the roots is that they are experiencing and appreciating the beauty and the glory of God, scriptural truth is opening their eyes to it. And this is the response to that. Then we can, you know, we, we can think that this is from the Lord, um, no matter how crazy or dramatic it looks. And so he's basically saying, don't judge the book by the cover, right? Like go, go in and look about what's actually, investigate about what's actually going on. So an incident that happened with Edwards in the first great awakening. And I have to say, like, this was my experience when I first came to college. I had a couple of friends, you know, we're, you know, we're pursuing the Lord together. It's all good. You know, and then one, I remember one time, you know, I, I learned that, that some of my friends were talking about seeing like what they called, you know, angels and demonic activity. And, you know, as I heard those things, my instant reaction was, was instantly was y'all are crazy. <laughs> like, like what, you know, is that real? Like, like, I thought I trusted you. Yeah. I thought you were sane. And now you're telling me you, you saw a demon in your room last night. Like, what was that about? You know what I mean? It was interesting how polarizing it was to me immediately. Instantly, it challenged me to be like, I either believe my friends, I believe it's true. And obviously I should investigate and do all those things, you know? Or I can just be like, I don't think these guys are saying I should hang out with them anymore. This not happened to me, just one person. Um, it's happened to me, multiple people, like, you know, across different generations, people who do not know, um, just random people I met up with sometime and they, you know, you know, can I confide in with you something? You know, this is something that does happen to me sometimes. And I do see this, you know, and I can't confirm or deny because it's not my testimony, you know, but I look at that and I realized, yeah, it was, boy, it was polarizing for me in the beginning, um, you know, but that's kind of a reality of what happens when we think about the actual work of supernatural in our midst. There's this famous book that came out and there's this famous controversy that happened actually during my college years. Um, it's, it's called The Strange Fire. Um, and this is from John MacArthur. And, uh, and please hear that I'm not in any way, this is not me, you know, bashing any of this stuff. Um, I do think that there was valid work in this in the sense that, so basically what happening was John MacArthur, who some of you guys know is a pastor on the West Coast. And, and he wrote this book called Strange Fire, calling out, basically saying the charismatic movement, the movement of the spiritual things that was going on in the United States, um, that people were claiming to see, you know, claiming to experience all those things I just talked about. He's saying that's actually demonic. That's actually not from God. Um, and so, and he based that evidence based off of the abuses of a lot of these charismatic leaders, which were absolutely true. You know, and, and there were, and he called out a lot of problems in the charismatic movement that are absolutely true. Some of these problems are prosperity gospel influence. Um, a lot of these guys were very connected to the prosperity gospel, faith healers who were praying on the poor, um, who were using, you know, whatever they were doing, you know, as a way to defraud poor people of their money. Um, and this was documented, questionable theological beliefs. Um, and so these were all very valid things that ought to be called out. But, you know, um, the problem was that he, he did end up addressing and saying, you know, everything, it all is, all of it, all of what's occurring in the U.S., you know, all around the world, people claim these things, people claim prophets and tongues, it's not from the Lord, because we know that these things have ceased. And so he's represented this position called cessationism. And I just want to say this a little bit, right, that there is value in discernment, there's value 
in investigating. There's not blind faith that we should go into that anyone walks into our room and says, I'm a prophet. We're going to be like, cool. All right. <laughs> we believe everything you say. There's a testing that is necessary. But we also need to be careful that we don't hastily, hastily just label it the other side and to go on the other side and to call things that are demonic that may indeed actually from God. Paul says this in first Thessalonians. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And I think maybe the context of this was Thessalonians were getting tired of these false prophets coming in and asking for money and, you know, saying all kinds of stuff that weren't true. And so maybe there was this sense of this, you know, despising where they're just, you know what, all these people are just full of crap. You know, it's not true. It's not real. And he goes on, he says, still don't despise it. Don't despise it because, you know, test everything, hold fast to what is good because there is good. There is good. And this, there is genuine movement of God in this. So I want to end with this for us today. And if you have any questions about any of these things I've said today, I couldn't cover everything. Obviously, this is a big topic. Please talk to me. You know, if you have any concerns, any of these things, um, I understand it is a controversial topic. Um, but I want to end with these things that I believe that I can say for us. I think we ought to be seek. We have to seek to be filled with the spirits. Um, so the first one I would I would encourage us to do is I do think based off that First Corinthians passage, um, and based off of how the Spirit came to the apostles in Pentecost. That we, we can and we should ask the spiritual, miraculous spiritual gifts. We should be open to it. We should be pursuing it. Um, we should not lack the faith. Um, and if God does not give, that's up to him, right? But we should not close the door on him and say, Lord, I don't need that. I don't need that. I'm good. Um, when God says, ask and you shall receive, how much more do I want to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Especially these things that will benefit your brothers and sisters that potentially could bring other people who do not know Christ to know Christ, why would you not, you know, make use of what God um, can and give you? Second, I think we should seek the presence of power of God in our daily lives in prayer and worship, regardless of the miraculous things. We should be seeking the spirit. We should be seeing, as we just sang earlier, spirit come, Jesus come, come into our church, into our lives with presence and power, blow our minds about you in scripture, you know, light our hearts on fire with love, empower us beyond ourselves, beyond what we possibly could live. This is, I would say, just a straightforward, ex, you know, exhortation that I would think everybody should be seeking as Christian. Seeking more. We want more, Lord. We know there is more. Um, give us more, God, because you said that, right? And finally, I think we should pursue with caution the wisdom of others. You know, that we can, and if you're interested, we can't read these books, and there is a whole charismatic movement out there. There's a whole literature, there's a whole movement of people who claim to practice a lot of these things, and, and some of it, I think, is valid, and some of it probably is false. Um, and I think there is, there is goodness, I think, in pursuing with caution um, people who do walk these things. Um, you know, I, as one, I say I'm not an authority or expert on these things, but I know people um, who live out these things. And I think there is an aspect of being like, hey, can you show me what that's like? You know, can you just show me what do you mean when you do those things? And, and can you even like, you know, can you even pray for me, you know, that I could receive or I could live in sort of what in, in, in the sort of the spiritual life that you do. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, this is what a passage this is, Lord. And what a reality this is. God, help us to have faith, Lord, in this moment. Help us not to be afraid, God, of what you offer. 
God, that you don't want us to just keep going on our lives depending on ourselves, depending only on what we know and what we feel comfortable with. Lord, you desire for us to live the full life of faith, to seek the fullness of what you can give us, what you do give us in your goodness. And so, Lord, I just pray for this time. I just ask, Lord, that you would come. Come, I ask that you would speak. I ask that you would come and touch our hearts with your spirit in ways that only you can, Lord. And if there are those of us here that have used to walk in this way, Lord, but perhaps have not anymore, for one reason or another, Lord, I just pray for revival of that. And I pray for our church, God. I pray that this would be a safe place to practice and to learn and to grow because we don't understand everything. I pray that this, would, this community would be a place, <laughs> exploration of your word and of your spirit. Seeking to be filled, God. Seeking to be filled with all the, the fullness of what you have to give to us. I do pray, Lord, for revival, God, in our church, in our city, in our nation, in the church worldwide, Lord. I do want to join into that prayer and ask that your kingdom would come, your will would be done, Lord. That you would empower your people with everything good so that we'd be able to live out lives that are just indisputably marked by your power and love. So I ask that in the Holy Spirit, I ask that in Jesus' name, amen.